I'm thankful for a lot of things this year. And um, if you were with us for our Black Friday uh, celebration, hitting the, the store at midnight or 11 o'clock when we went out, that was a lot of fun. Um, I'm thankful for all those folks that came out and volunteered. I'm thankful for uh, our, our few volunteers that uh, helped decorate the church yesterday. Doesn't it look good? Everything looks nice. Um, thankful for a lot of things. Um, it's interesting, you know, you're coming off of, for what a lot of people is, um, unless you work in retail, uh, is a four-day weekend. You know, you get Thanksgiving off, unless you work at Walmart, um, and then you get Friday off, and then Saturday and Sunday, and and we call this sort of a holiday weekend. And if you look at the, the verbiage of holiday, you can pretty quickly put together that that was originally two words, holy day. And we stick them together and say real quick, and it's holiday. And that's what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a day that we set aside, and that's what holy means. It's set apart. It is a day that is holy. Uh, it's a day that is important. It's, it's consecrated. It's a special day. And it's a day that we set aside just to be thankful and to share that with family, and to do that high holy work of celebrating. Now, I know a lot of times we don't think of parties and, and celebrations as holy work, but if you look in Scripture, they took that seriously, and, and there's a high holiness to celebrating. And so I hope that this week you've, you've been able to have that. And here you are today to, to put all of that t- together and um, you know worship God. And then tomorrow morning, uh, it's going to be Monday, and you're going to go back to work. And for a lot of people, that's really a difficult reality to have to deal with because no longer is it going to be, uh, you know, your family that's there meeting you or the friends that you've been visiting. It's going to be your boss. And you don't really understand your boss. And you're not sure that you want to spend a whole week with this person considering that you've had uh, an entire four days away. And you're going to be greeted by this coworker that if we're going to be really honest, we can't really stand that person. And yet there we are. And we're thankful to have a job, particularly in today's economy. Um, but it seems really kind of depressing to go from this high holy celebration and into the world. Um, there's been psychologists that have studied this post-holiday letdown. Let me share with you some suggestions uh, from a doctor, somebody or t'other, uh, who was on CBS News. If I can get through my stack here. Dr. Jennifer Hartstein on CBS News. She says, you know, you need to think about what you can do to eat right and to feel right. You know, you, you want to look at your diet. You've overindulged. And so now you need to think about eating more whole grains, uh, nuts. Magnesium has been shown to keep the energy level uh, up. Um, non-salted nuts, that is. Lean meats, salmon. Um, you know, you eat more salmon and fruits and vegetables and you'll feel better about life and reality, apparently. Um, here's another helpful tip. I'm reading this uh, verbatim. It says, even if it's a cloudy day, get outside. Hartstein said a sun lamp for as little as 10 minutes a day can also help. Uh, so maybe you ought to rush out if you're really depressed about tomorrow and buy yourself a sun lamp. Um, and then that will make you feel better. Um, or Hartstein suggested you could maybe organize a photo album. Now listen to the wording here. She says, and email them to everybody. She goes, it's keeping that connection of living that happy time alive, that feel-good time that you liked, so that you can keep that going and keep your mood up. Now let's just read about this here. Let's just read the implication. 
Keeping that happy time alive because your normal reality, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, is not happy. That you can keep that feel-good time that you like, implying that you don't feel good normally. That you don't like what you do normally. So that way you can keep your mood up because normally your mood goes down. It's sad to me to think that. But I know that for a lot of folks, this is a reality. Well, we have this problem that, that somehow we were made for more than what it is we do. We think, you know, if I could only have these high holy celebrations, if I could only maybe do this church thing a little bit more, man, that's when I really feel alive. That's when I really feel good about myself. It's this Monday through Friday business that I, I don't like. And let me give you this. I, I think here's the problem. We have a, a bifurcated uh, reality, a split reality, where we, we look at it and we go, you know, there's this, this sacred, holy, high, happy, feel-good thing, and then there is this secular work that's just really a necessary evil. You know, I like to eat, and I like to have a house. I have to go to work in order to have this. And so I guess I just got to do it. And we kind of have this split between the sacred, this holy good thing, and then this, this non-sacred, secular work reality. And, and I think for us as Christians, that, that, that it may be particularly depressing. And it seems even in the text of Scripture that there's some folks that wrestle with this. Uh, let's look at Acts 6. And, and I, we're going to get the wrong impression at first, but let's, get, let's look at this picture. I, I want to look at two texts and kind of compare them. If, if you will. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, and I've shared this with our Monday morning men, but uh, it bears repeating. Uh, it, it says here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now during those days, uh, this is the NIV, in those days when the number of dis disciples was increasing, and they did, they had over a few thousand added in a day, uh, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so here's what happened. The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. Doesn't that sound good? The ministry of the Word of God. Oh, that's high holy work, it sounds like. To wait on tables. Wow. Maybe that's what you're going to. You know, you're coming from the high holy work of the ministry of the Word of God, and now you're going back to wait tables and keep shop and stand on the line and deal with people. And so what they say is, they say, you know, it wouldn't be right for us to do that. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Ooh. But the problem is that that word ministry is really poorly translated here, I think. Because the word ministry and the word service, it's the same word. And so what the disciples are saying is a little bit more like what's in the New Revised Standard. And, and let's just look at that briefly. I, I think we'll try to put that up on the screen. But the New Revised says this. It says, The twelve called together the whole community and said, It is not right that we would neglect the Word of God in order to wait on tables. And says, So therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. 
while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying there's two tasks of service. There's a serving of the Word of God to the congregation, and then there's another equally important task of serving the tables of the poor. They're both serving. They're both ministry. And they both have high requirements. Now, I know for us, if we were going to hire maybe uh, some servers in a state where they don't even get paid a full minimum wage, we would maybe look at that and go, well, what type of qualifications do you have to have really? But they took this seriously. Did you notice that? It says that you should pick some people with good standing. In other words, they've got a reputation of holiness and righteousness. You should pick somebody that is full of God's Holy Spirit. You should pick somebody that is full of wisdom. All of this to wait tables. But you see, for the disciples, there wasn't a job too small for a believer to be a part of and to make a difference in. You know, what they're going to be doing is ministry. What they're going to be doing is service, just the same as us. And so if they're going to serve and if they're going to minister and they're going to do it faithfully, then they've got to be full of the spirit of wisdom. They've got to be full of God's spirit. They've got to be righteous people because both of these tasks are important. They didn't have a difference there. They said, we want you to pick some people that have the right spirit for the job. And that's key. I think that is central, is that we understand that, that we need to have the right spirit for the job, whatever job it is. Whatever job it is. Now, there's another story I want to look at, and that is in Acts chapter 8. And if you look at Acts chapter 8, we'll see about another man uh, and another spirit and another job. Uh, this is about Simon the sorcerer. Uh, verse 9 in chapter 8 says this, Now, a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Now, this guy has got a self-esteem that borders on blasphemy, but it's really robust. Um, He has been used to being called the great of the power of God known as great. How would you like that to be your title? You can put that on your business card. I am the power of God that is known as great. Now, unfortunately for Simon, he had one of those jobs that you cannot hold and be a Christian. There's very few of those kinds of jobs. As a matter of fact, I dare say all of you can be a Christian and do what it is you're probably doing right now. But for Simon, you can't be, you mean, well, you might be able to be a Christian construction worker, a Christian banker, or a Christian mechanic, or a Christian manager. You can't really be a Christian sorcerer. It doesn't work that way. And so Simon had to give up his job, a midlife career shift, if you will. And you can imagine the disappointment from going from Simon, the great power of God, to Simon, the unemployed man formerly known as the great power of God. It would be a hard reality to wake up to in the morning. And Simon is struggling with this, I think. His loss of, uh, of prominence in the community because he sees the apostles laying on hands of people, giving them the Holy Spirit, and these people just come alive with all sorts of gifts. And he thinks to himself, you know, that'd be really convenient. That'd really soften the blow if I could do that. And so he does this. He comes to the disciples in verse 18, and he says, uh, listen. Uh, Verse 19, give me this power after he offered them some money in verse 18. 
He says, give me also this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money, you have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the chains of wickedness. In other words, you and your money can, well, you can imagine where he said to go. You can go there. You you can't buy the Spirit. Well, what's the difference? I think it's in the order. If you remember the deacons, they had the right spirit for the job. But Simon, see, he had a job for the spirit. And he thought, you know, if I had the spirit, life would be convenient. And if I had the spirit, uh, I would return to this place of prominence. If I had the spirit, uh, things would work out a little bit better for me. And before we're too hard on him, I think that's the way a lot of us work. You know, we pray when we have got a job for God. God, I need you to get me through this. And and we claim Christianity when it's convenient and works out well. But the problem is that you cannot bring a job for the Spirit to do. The way that it works properly is to have a Spirit, the right Spirit for the job. The, The deacons were selected. Why? Because they had the Spirit for the job. And the church looked at him and said, these are the people that could fit this task, this ministry. Simon said, you know, uh, it would work out a lot better for me if I had the Spirit. He tries to buy it, to bribe it. And I think that's part of our problem. With, With this holy celebration letdown, with this sacred secular split. And a lot of times we come to church because we're trying to figure out, why does it work so well there and not work so well here? And I think it's because we get... Get them backwards. And so, I'll be honest with you, I don't have this fully worked out. I've been doing a lot of thinking and praying about this. this. But how is it that we can reclaim every day as sacred and holy, and every vocation as sacred and holy? And how is it that we can look at what we do Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, as being meaningful? The way that the disciples saw that waiting on tables was meaningful. I'm going to give you three steps to what I think is is a movement towards that. Three steps towards trying to claim every day and every vocation as sacred. And I've made this invitation, and I'm very serious. If you take this serious and you start working this out, I want to hear about it. Because I think it's important that we get a good understanding of this. But let me give you three, three steps towards. Step one is this. It is to ask this question. How... God, are you at work here? How are you at work here, God? We have this misconception that we are the bearers of all light and truth and holiness. And we go into our secular, pagan work environment with a bunch of heathen goat worshipers. I'm making a part of this. But, but we have this idea that the people we work with and surround us are, are full of darkness, and we're the lone people of light, and it is my job to bring Christ there. And if I don't bring Christ there, then nobody's going to bring Christ there. But I think that's an awfully self-centered understanding of reality that says, uh, yes, I'm the soul bearer of Christ and I'm the soul bearer of the Spirit. I suspect that if we ask this question, God, what is it that you're already doing in this workplace? What are you already doing among my co-workers? What are you already doing among those that supervise me? I suspect we would find something a little bit different. 
I suspect that we would find that God has beaten us there, that God's Spirit was already at work, and that there were people that were already working to the glory of God if we would have the eyes to see. And that, I think, is key. It takes a lot of the pressure off, doesn't it? It says, all right, God, you're going to be the primary agent. You're going to be the primary motivator. You're going to be the primary mover. And I'm going to partner with you in that work. So that's step one is ask that question. God, how is it that you're at work here? And how can I help? The the second one is is to, to pray, but specifically pray and offer your work to God. Uh, We forget that God, yes, He created humanity as the pinnacle of creation, but what was He doing on days one through four? I'm sorry, one through five. He's creating primarily inanimate objects. He's creating dirt. He's creating stars. He's creating ocean. He's creating fish and bugs and insects and birds. He's creating a lot of things. Maybe you create something in your job. Maybe you make something. Maybe you work at a factory and you put out products. If so, you're working in much the way that God the Creator is working. That's a good thing. Maybe you are a manager. Maybe you work primarily with people. If so, pray and offer that to God as well. You can say, Lord, I want to pray for those that work with me. And you don't have to tell them. You can just pray for them. And say, God, I want you to do something amazing in these people's lives, and I want you to maybe show me how it is that you're already at work there. And and whatever it is you do, whether it's people or products, you're praying for that and offering that as an offering to God, saying, God, I want to do this with excellence for your glory. Uh, So that's, that's step two. Step three towards this is to wait on God for the results. Let me give you maybe what we might term a case study right out of Scripture from 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, you've got the prophet Elijah, who does what we would call high holy work. This happens even to people that do high holy work. Uh, Elijah had great, this great big showdown with the prophets of Baal. And in that, he defeats all of them. They, they get slaughtered. And so he's feeling good about himself. But Queen Jezebel, what does she do? She writes letters to him and says, listen, uh, if, so be it uh, if by this time tomorrow, I don't do the same thing to you that you did to the prophets. In other words, I'm going to kill you and it's going to be quick. And so Elijah, he flees for his life. He flees for his life, he runs away, and he makes it to the mountain of God. And if you remember the story, you remember the prayer, he prays to God. He said, God, you know, listen, look what I've done for you. Look at all the things that I've accomplished. Look at how I've been faithful. And now look what's happened here to me. And he says this, this is so interesting to me. He says, I am the only one left. I'm the only one left. Have you ever felt that way? maybe your place of business, you go, you know, I'm the only one here that's faithful. And Elijah says, listen, out of the entire nation of Israel, I'm the only faithful person left. And God says, get real, Elijah. He says, I have reserved for myself thousands, 7,000 people that have never bowed to a false idol. I have reserved 7,000 people Uh, Elijah, listen, you think you're doing me a great favor, but I've already been at work in this nation. I've already been at work in these people. I've beat you to it. And now just wait and see what I'll do. And God does some amazing things. He pours his spirit into Elijah. And Elijah then goes out and anoints uh, his predecessor, Elisha, or his follower, Elisha. And he anoints a few other people um, because God poured his spirit in him. But you see, Elijah, he had the problem that we all have, which is, man, we want to see this and we want to see it now and we want to see it quick. I've been faithful. I've done this and I've been praying. Why isn't it happening? 
And God says, listen, if you'd have the eyes to see, you would see that I've already been at work and I've already been doing amazing things. And, and so those would be what I would consider the three steps towards claiming every day and every vocation as sacred. Uh, I really wrestled with this this week, and I don't know why that is. Um, but I think it was Tuesday. I got an email devotion that I read quite regularly. And uh, it, came, it came from an essay titled, Why Work? And I thought, man, this, this is divine affirmation at its best. Uh, a gal by the name of Dorothy Sayers writes this, and, and she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. I don't know much about her other than that. But this, this article is, is pretty, pretty brilliant, and I'm going to share with you three, three, just three short paragraph excerpts. She says this. She says, I ask that work should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. That it should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of work itself. And that man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. Unless we change our whole way of thought about work, I do not think that we shall ever escape from the appalling squirrel cage of economic confusion in which we've been madly turning for the last three centuries or so. The cage in which we landed ourselves by acquiescing in a social system based upon envy and avarice. Now, listen to this last sentence, particularly coming into Christmas, I think. A society in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded on trash and waste. And such a society is a house built upon sand. Let me read that one more time. A society in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded on trash and waste. And such a society is a house built upon sand. In church, I think that maybe needs to be the aha moment for us. As we go, you know what I've done? As I spend too much time building houses out of sand and upon sand. When God has given me the opportunity to partner with Him in the job that I'm at, in the family that I've been given, to build something that matters and lasts for eternity. That's the challenge is that we would have the eyes to see what God is doing and what God wants to do and partner with Him for His purpose, for something that lasts. Tomorrow, let me let you know, you're going to go out and you're going to do the high holy work that which you have been trained and appointed to do. Today is just the summit meeting. Tomorrow the work starts. And I pray that you would take this challenge seriously, to have the eyes to see what God is doing to offer your work as a gift and sacrifice to Him. And that you'd wait on Him to see the results.